The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Ultimately, that is our duty. Our duty is to find balance because there's no perfection. We don't operate with perfect information, and there's no perfect world in which you have full security and full privacy and civil liberties. So the question is, where is the appropriate balance? I'm Stephanie Pell, Senior Editor at Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, October 17th, 2023. On September 28th, the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board or PCLOB, issued its long-awaited report on FISA Section 702, a surveillance authority that is set to expire on December 31st if it is not reauthorized by Congress. The report was supported by only three members of the board, with the two minority members issuing their own separate statement. The 3-2 split was along party lines. I sat down with four members of the PCLOB, the chair, Sharon Bradford Franklin, and board members Travis LeBlanc, Beth Williams, and Richard DeZeno. Board member Ed Felton could not join due to medical reasons. In this second of two episodes, we talk about the members' views on the privacy and civil liberties risks posed by Section 702 and each side's differing recommendations on how to address these issues, with a special focus on the recommendation that is the most serious point of contention among the two sides. If you haven't listened to yesterday's episode, where we talked about the areas on which the members substantially agree, and the compliance problems that have plagued the FBI, you may want to do that first. It's the Lawfare Podcast, October 17th. Part 2 of the PCLOB on FISA Section 702. So I want to now shift gears a little bit and specifically focus on some of the significant privacy and civil liberties implications and risks posed by Section 702. And because we have limited time, if we could at least start by focusing most on targeting collection and U.S. person queries. So if, if I can start with Travis and Sharon and just ask you to talk about some of the concerns or risks with respect to targeting and collection that you see posed by Section 702. Sure. I'll, I'll, I'll start. And we do have a couple of recommendations with regard to targeting to address that situation. As, as we discussed earlier, I agree that uh, compliance incidents with targeting have been uh, relatively low. And 
targets are individuals who do not have recognized Fourth Amendment rights. That said, there are still risks of uh, potential overbroad collection or collection being sufficiently broad that it really does raise uh, privacy risks. And one reason is that the definition of foreign intelligence information that can be collected under FISA is extremely broad. One of the recommendations that we made to address that uh, relates to something that requires a little bit of background, <laughs> relates to something called Executive Order 14086. Um, that's an executive order that was issued by President Biden about a year ago. And it was designed to implement the new data privacy framework between the United States and the EU. And it includes a number of commitments focused on that data privacy framework, one of which is that intelligence agencies can only collect signals intelligence for 12 specified legitimate objectives. And so that is a way that the intelligence agencies have already, you know, agreed to uh, making this commitment. This is how we're going to cabin our collection to make sure it is appropriate and rights uh, respecting. And I should also say it is already applicable to Section 702. Uh, the intelligence agencies have asserted they are in compliance. We agree. Um, that the current purposes for Section 702 uh, that have been the purposes for some time, the three certifications that are now uh, declassified, all fit within those 12 objectives. And so we have recommended that those 12 purposes be codified so that would ensure that when the government goes before the FISA court for its annual certification of the Section 702 program, if they were one day to want to expand their targeting in a way that did not fit within those 12 objectives, the FISA court would have jurisdiction to enforce that. So that's one way to try and ensure and, and, and continue to give comfort that the government is appropriately pursuing legitimate purposes for its targeting. Um, one other aspect I will mention on, on targeting, another recommendation that we have is as kind of a carry forward from the 2014 report which is recommending that Congress require that the government submit a random sample of targeting decisions to the FISA court as part of that annual certification process. And that would enable the FISA court to ensure that it agreed that the targeting procedures were being complied with to detect if there was a need to modify those targeting procedures to more appropriately cabin in the targeting under 702 in a privacy-productive way. Beth and Rich, would you like to respond? Look, as we said, we think that, you know, our position was that the, the report or our statement would be most helpful if it was focused, which is why we had, you know, seven focused recommendations. Targeting is largely going very well, as we said. And so we focused our recommendations where the compliance problems actually were. Yeah. And, and I would just add on, on the, the two specifics that Sharon pointed out. I think this is where we significantly disagree with the analysis, especially with respect to, first, the definition of foreign intelligence. There is, in, in the majority analysis, essentially a, a, an assertion that there is risk there. W without any analysis of the, the likelihood of that risk or where that risk falls or what, what that means, and essentially saying, this is too broad and therefore 
um, these measures need to be put in place. And I think our our job is to identify where there are privacy and civilities risks for sure, but to understand the context of of the risks that that are in play and mitigating measures that minimize those risks. And, and so, in our view, there there's no evidence that we saw that there is an effort by the government to really go to the outer limits or or exceed the limits of exploring surveillance for the purposes of moving outside of the definition of foreign intelligence. There, there's also no evidence of any effort to expand the categories of information that that the government is is seeking to to address. And so I think it's helpful to have kind of a sober analysis of is this a a potential risk that the government is is essentially overplaying its hand or or moving outside the bounds of the statute if it is how are they controlling that and are they i think the, uh, the words were used that you know, are are they appropriately pursuing legitimate purposes for for their targeting in our review we saw no evidence that there was inappropriate purpose uh, for for targeting there there was, there was just none that that we came across and so are the procedures in place to uh, to to mitigate some of the risks that are associated with that and our view that they they are and and so you know that kind of leads to i think a disagreement on whether or not that's an appropriate recommendation I would just add that I think that we have um, some more skepticism of the FISC than maybe our colleagues do. The FISC serves a very important purpose. The FISC uh, being the, FISC the Foreign being Intelligence. The Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court. They serve a very important purpose. I am glad that they are there, but they're not you know, the Carter Page surveillance that we think was very problematic was done pursuant to a warrant authorized by the FISC. And so, um, you know, with regard to codifying the executive order, I think the purpose of that, as stated in the majority report, is to um, is to allow the FISC to then have oversight and oversee all these purposes. I'm not sure that 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 the FISC is the is the panacea. Yeah. I am surprised that they, uh, that Beth and Rich have a healthy skepticism of an Article Three judge and judges. All of these judges are nominated by the president. They are confirmed by the United States Senate, and they are making judicial decisions every single day in criminal and civil and foreign intelligence matters. I find it hard to grapple with the concerns around the FBI and the culture at the FBI and to conclude that we should trust the FBI more and trust courts less. That is really concerning to me. The final arbiter of the Constitution is the court, and we rely upon courts every day to Look at the facts that they have, the information they have. Look at the law and to make really difficult decisions about what is lawful. I get really concerned to, as to what it does for our democracy, 
for our government if there is a healthy skepticism of a court. Well, just to respond to that, the skepticism I was talking about was not with regard to any single judge. It's re- with regard to the structural role of a court in in essentially doing what is political oversight. And we would not trust the FBI to do all of their own oversight. We've actually suggested that Congress should take a larger role in some of these oversight because structurally, the court is looking at what it's supposed to be looking at, which is legal justification for for the program, right? That's what they're looking at. They're looking at, is the program reasonable under the Fourth Amendment? And they've found that it is every single time it's been up. But that is not, and they're they're also looking for Title I warrants, right? Whether there's probable cause that there's a foreign agent. But that's a different type of oversight than some of the problem that's needed for some of the problems that we've seen, which is why we don't only trust the FBI to do their own oversight. We also suggest a greater role for Congress and the political branches in this. So, Beth, since you mentioned the Fourth Amendment, that is a wonderful pivot point to talk about the privacy and civil liberties implications of U.S. person queries and specifically recommendation number three, Travis and Sharon. Can you talk about some of the significant privacy and civil liberties implications and risks of querying and why you feel that recommendation three is so critical? Happy to do so, Stephanie. In my view, Section 702's necessity and value decreased substantially when used to incidentally collect Americans' electronic communications and then search those communications to investigate Americans' domestic activities, oftentimes for matters that are completely unrelated to the foreign intelligence purpose for which they were collected. In my view, the querying of U.S. persons by the intelligence community needs more oversight and could be further aligned with foundational democratic principles that promote transparency, accountability, independent oversight, and reform, even in highly classified national security programs. We know that Americans' communications are incidentally collected under Section 702 surveillance. What we don't know is the number of U.S. persons who've had those communications uh, collected. We do know, however, that there have been a massive number of queries with American identifiers in recent years. Just the FBI alone in 2020, there were 1.3 million queries, 3.4 million in 2021, and approximately 204,000 in 2022. Although the number of U.S. person queries by the FBI dropped dramatically in 2021 due to a series of reforms that the FBI implemented the year before, 204,000 is still a very large number. That's more than 550 U.S. person queries every single day and is many orders of magnitude larger than the number of U.S. person queries performed by the rest of the intelligence community combined. When you add all the U.S. person queries in the last few years, they amount to approximately 5 million such searches by the FBI and thousands of searches by NCTC, CIA, and NSA, all seeking to obtain Americans' private information and all done without the individualized and particular approval of a court. Although Section 702 is touted as a foreign intelligence tool, it is apparent that a key feature is domestic intelligence and criminal law enforcement. 
While it may be efficient to search Section 702 collections for U.S. identifiers five million times, we must also look at the efficacy or value of those queries. During the course of the last two years, we have had many classified briefings on the value of the Section 702 program, including briefings specifically on the potential value of U.S. person queries to the program. Thus far, however, I have seen minimal to negligible examples of value for querying U.S. persons uh, through often many years old Section 702 collections. So I ask, what do you have to show for the 5 million queries? Where are the criminal prosecutions associated with the 5 million queries? In 2018, uh, the number of F2 orders obtained was zero. In 2019, the number was zero. In 2020, the number was zero. In 2021, the number was zero. And the same, and at the same time, we know there have been compliance incidents where the government failed to obtain an F2 order, even though it was supposed to do so. In short, the current court order requirement in Section 702 is too limited and has failed to offer any meaningful protection for privacy and civil liberties. But beyond the massive querying of Section 702 collections for U.S. persons, the lack of examples where such queries could not have been pursued with consent and or exigent circumstances. So our recommendation provides um, an exception for the government to review the content of U.S. person queries if they obtain consent from uh, the individual impacted or if there are exigent circumstances. When you look at all the examples that are given, we've yet to see any where they couldn't have obtained that. So the board's report also, though, finds that compliance incidents are rampant at FBI in particular. Um, as I mentioned earlier, it includes the improper searching of political leaders such as members of Congress, social advocates, religious community leaders, and even individuals who provide tips or who are victims of crime. In particular, we now know that FBI conducted hundreds of searches of advocates associated with individuals arrested by law enforcement during the George Floyd protests, and I gave some of the, the numbers earlier. For all these reasons, um, I wholeheartedly support the board's recommendation that the government obtain a court order before reviewing the contents of U.S. person communications in Section 702 databases. In my view, um, such a program warrants court approval of individual U.S. person queries, which would reduce compliance errors, promote accountability, and build public trust in a surveillance program long beleaguered by a wide range of privacy and civil liberties threats. Before we get the next comment or response, could I just ask you to clarify F2 order? Under the current state of the law, when is the FBI required to get an F2 order. And I hear you saying that they've never gotten one before, even when they've been required under the law to do so. So when Congress reauthorized Section 702, the most recent time in January of 2018, it added a very narrow uh, requirement for seeking a warrant, a requirement for the FBI to seek a warrant before accessing or reviewing raw Section 702 content uh, returned in response to certain queries. And so that requires that it's a U.S. person query, that it's conducted solely to retrieve evidence of a crime, 
and that it's conducted in connection with a predicated criminal investigation opened by the FBI that does not relate to the national security of the United States. So it's a very small percentage of FBI's actual U.S. person queries that fall within F2. Nonetheless, there have been uh, quite a number of documented instances in which the FBI was required to seek an F2 order in order to review uh, the contents of communications returned by such a query, and they failed to seek such an order. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called My Life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have My Life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that, you know, they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, 
but they'll put it back and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code LAWFARE20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. So Beth and Rich, if I can allow you to respond to Travis and Sharon's comments, and then we will come back and address the chair's separate statement. So I think we need to take a step back and just think about the context here. What we saw this past weekend in Israel should give everyone pause. And for those who don't remember September 11th, and at this point, that's now 20% of our population that was not yet born on September 11th. The situation in Israel is what a failure of intelligence looks like. That's what it looks like. When intelligence fails, you can have mass civilian casualties. And the government needs some powers in order to keep us safe. They need powers authorized by Congress and with numerous checks and safeguards to protect privacy and civil liberties. And that's what we have with Section 702. No one wants to go back to pre-702 times when Article 2 authority was asserted without all of the hard-won privacy and civil liberties safeguards we have today. And there is no question that we are now in a better position now than we were before 2008. Now, the board did not do a legal analysis of the program because courts have done it. There was no need for us to do it. What we did is a policy analysis. Would we be better off if the government had to go to a court every time it ran a U.S. person query or would we not be better off? And I think one of the questions you have to ask yourself when you hear these numbers and that we've asked ourselves is they did all of these searches, how many of those U.S. person searches were improper and how many returned any content? I think if you don't ask yourself those two questions, the numbers can be misleading because it's suggesting that they're going through massive amounts of U.S. person information when the evidence does not suggest that that's what's happening. So then the question is, well, what is the standard? 
And what the majority uh, decided was that the standard should be the same as it is now. Reasonable likelihood that you would find foreign intelligence information or evidence of a crime. And so does that provide higher privacy and civil liberties benefits when the standard is the same, but now you have to go to a court? We concluded it doesn't. It actually could provide worse uh, privacy and civil liberties implications because now, as Rich said before, you have the government having to go and investigate and create dossiers on U.S. persons in order to justify a preliminary investigative step. That is not to say there should not be more checks, that the FBI shouldn't have better compliance in place, that Congress shouldn't have better oversight and and more visibility into potential misuse of this program for political or other improper purposes. But it is a conclusion that this additional step of requiring agents and analysts to do weeks of paperwork before being able to figure out who the terrorist compatriot is in the United States is dangerous and is not compatible with a good balance between national security and privacy and civil liberties. And ultimately, that is our duty. Our duty is to find balance because there's no perfection. We don't operate with perfect information and there's no perfect world in which you have full security and full privacy and civil liberties. So the question is, where is the appropriate balance? And I would just add as a starting point, again, this gets back to the different policy analysis that uh, the majority and, and Beth and I approach the report from and respectfully disagree with my friend Travis on this point. I think we, the majority doesn't see, frankly, value in much of the U.S. person querying operations. We do. In our briefings, we've heard a number of examples where that part of the program literally saved lives. And to us, that is incredibly powerful and telling. I'm bouncing around a little bit, but with respect to F2 orders, completely agree with Travis. You know, that's a problem. Uh, and where there are problems, we do our best to call those out and, and address them. Uh, the FBI needs to report those situations where they're asking for a qu- or they're querying information in predicated criminal investigations, period. It's unacceptable that they don't do that. However, to, I think one of the points was made, the criminal prosecutions that result from querying, where are they? And in our view, that's an improper metric to determine value. This is a national security tool. And in our view, we shouldn't be using a national security tool in order to produce criminal investigations. The opposite should be the case. We should be deterring domestic law enforcement from using this tool to develop domestic criminal investigations. And and to say that the lack of domestic criminal investigations is evidence of the lack of value, I think is uh, turning that that point on, on its head. And so we just really, that's sort of the starting point that leads into everything that Beth just mentioned. 
I'd like to speak to recommendation three first before I speak to my own separate statement and respond to some of the points that have been made. So first of all, with regard to the um, lack of criminal prosecutions as a metric, there only have been nine prosecutions, as as we detail in our report, where um, they've relied on evidence from Section 702 and provided the notice to those criminal defendants. And none of those have they said it came from a, a query. Uh, but from 702 generally. But if queries are largely for the purpose for FBI of seeking evidence of a crime, then that to me seems like a very clear tie-in. And so if they need to query to seek evidence of a crime, then it should be something that is leading to criminal prosecutions. But they have never identified any prosecution where they did rely on evidence coming from a query. One other point I'd like to make, I know Travis also wants to speak to recommendation three, and then we can come back to me speaking to my my separate statement, is I don't understand how it is more privacy invasive to develop the factual predicate necessary for approval of the query. First of all, recommendation three, unlike my separate statement, holds to the same standards that the agencies are already meeting. And so if they already have to show that they're meeting that same query standard, they should already be doing that um, information gathering and compiling and just and writing up that justification to meet that query standard anyway. Will a FISA court likely require more documentation, maybe a more thorough packet? Most people would expect that the answer to that is yes, but they're already supposed to be meeting that standard. So there shouldn't be any more investigation. But also, in our American legal system, we don't say it is more privacy invasive for the police to gather the evidence necessary to support a search warrant rather than to simply go into somebody's home and search it without a search warrant. It is a fundamental tenet of our American legal system that establishing that predicate, that information necessary to support the search, to support that invasion of privacy is is how our system works. And and I, I don't understand how that would be more privacy invasive. I believe that Recommendation 3's requirement for FISA court approval is a thoughtful, balanced recommendation that really is tailored to the concerns that we had heard from the intelligence community. We heard concerns that if every time they ran a query, they had to go to a court, that the FISA court would be overloaded with the number of quizzes. Imagine 5 million applications to the FISA court, right? You can only imagine how how burdened that court would be. And as, as Beth has pointed out, the... FBI only has access to 3.4% of the 702 collections. Again, why they would need to query 3.4% for 5 million times is something that I scratch my head over, especially if we're talking about a cyber incident and you're querying data from 2017 about a cyber incident in 2023. Cyber data gets outdated pretty pretty quickly. But of the 3.4% and the 5 million queries, in 2022, FBI personnel accessed content returned by U.S. person queries for only 1.58% of such queries. So of the 
you know, 2022, the 204,000 U.S. person queries that they did, they only got a hit on 1.58%. Now, why is that? Well, my initial inclination, well, that just shows that it's a fishing expedition um, when you're running it and you're coming up with that. But, but, but we were told by the intelligence community that they wanted to run those searches so that they could rule out theories. So we wrote the recommendation to allow them to actually run those queries and find out if there's a hit. So at this point, 98.5% of the queries that they want to do, they can still do with our recommendation. So we are now down to 1.58% in 2022 that they nevertheless continue to believe that they absolutely must not go to the FISA court. Now, that 1.58% are not actually true hits. Those are just hits. So, for example, if they're searching for John Smith, there could be several John Smiths in there that that pop up. So the real number is actually probably lower than 1.58%. And so I kind of ask myself, you have a program that Beth highlighted the value of in a scenario if the United States had an attack on it like uh, the attack that Hamas did to Israel this past weekend, or if we had another 9-11, like Rich said, with immense value. Why do you put that entire program at risk solely that you, so that you can avoid going to court on the 1.58% of queries that actually are around U.S. persons that have nothing to do with foreigners abroad that were targeted in all likelihood. And and that, to me, is the crux of really where the argument is, what to do about that 1.58%. And, and I do wonder why the intelligence community hasn't yet embraced the idea that reauthorization of this program is so important that the 1.58% of U.S. person queries is worth going to a court so that it can all move forward. That just tells you everything you need to know. The intelligence community thinks that 1.58% is so important that it would severely hobble the program or destroy the program if if their recommendation were adopted by Congress. That's how important that 1.58% is because those are the ones that get hits. Those are the ones that maybe have the connection between the terrorist abroad and the terrorist already in our country. That's why it's so important. And if you are going to wait two, three weeks to maybe put your package together and try to get a court to approve it before you see the contents of the hit, so you know that there's contents there, you know that they're talking to the foreign terrorist abroad or the foreign target, the reason it's 3.2%, the reason uh, the FBI only has 3.2% is because those are targets of predicated national security investigations. So what an analyst or an agent will do is they they will search to see if the U.S. person in question is in communication with the bad guys that they already know about. That's what it's for. And in those hits, those are the most important. Those are the ones that would be hobbled or destroyed with this program. So I, I, I strongly disagree that the program would, as a whole, be severely hobbled. Um, by recommendation three, it would, in my view, neither cause an end to U.S. person queries 
nor would it undermine the overall efficacy of Section 702 in protecting U.S. national security. The vast majority of the examples of efficacy that the board reviewed and that we found value in are from the overall targeting and focus on the foreigners outside the United States. That is where the vast majority of value comes from. In terms of the value of U.S. person queries, they can have value, but the strongest case really is in um, what the government has often referred to as victim queries or defensive queries. And many of those might actually be uh, accommodated by the consent exception that is built in to recommendation three. Um, so so I, I, I would d- dispute that characterization. But I would like to speak briefly also to my separate... Can, can I just say one last thing? I'll go 20 seconds on this and then you have, have added on. Just 20. If the 1.58% of U.S. person queries that return hits are so important to this program, where are the prosecutions? Where are the examples of value? The the government has struggled this year to show examples of value. And even where they have been able to show them, the exceptions that we've made for consent and exigent circumstances would accommodate them. So in the end, the actual zone of disagreement is probably well below 1%. I believe it is critically important that Congress require judicial review, independent judicial review for U.S. person queries before the government can review and access the results returned by a query. We talked a little bit earlier about how at the front end, at the targeting stage, there is no individualized review of targeting decisions. That is appropriate. Those are individuals who do not have recognized Fourth Amendment rights. But Americans do have recognized Fourth Amendment rights in their privacy and in the privacy of their communications. And even if you don't want to look at it as a constitutional matter, everyone, I think, agrees that Americans have recognized privacy interests in their communications. And I wrote separately to point out that I do agree that Congress needs to at least um, follow Recommendation 3 and require FISA court review of these U.S. person query terms. But I believe that Congress should also require a probable cause standard for FBI's U.S. person queries when they are conducted, at least in part, to seek evidence of a crime in order to fully protect Americans' privacy and civil liberties. And this would make sure that we were consistent with criminal law requirements across the rest of our criminal justice system in in general. Content uh, of communications requires a probable cause finding in the criminal context, and this is critically important. And one other uh, key point I will make in our limited time remaining is that expedience or burden is something that we have tried to address in how we have framed Recommendation 3 with only saying that the judicial review should be required when there is a hit and uh, the exceptions for exigent circumstances and for actual consent. But the American legal system does not permit law enforcement to avoid compliance with constitutional safeguards simply because it would be more expedient. And if we need to have safeguards to protect Americans' privacy interests as part of our legal system, then skipping those cannot be a solution simply because we view it as as burdensome. And to take an extreme example, it would be more expedient for our police to avoid getting search warrants before they searched homes. But we don't allow that. We require them to get search warrants. 
Again, I, I think we have a different starting point, with, which is a serious disagreement with value. We have agreement on really significant concerns about the compliance incidents that um, resulted from the, the querying part of the program. We just have a very different view on how to address those concerns. And in our view, constructing what the majority would want to construct, especially with respect to a probable cause standard, would end that part of the program, plain and simple. That that really is the case. Uh, there's no incentive for the FBI to go to a court to seek access to that information. And it, and in fact, runs into this perverse incentive problem that I described earlier, which is if there is a uh, court requirement involved, there's a perverse incentive for the FBI to instead seek a Title I FISA for actual surveillance. And that is much more privacy intrusive than simply obtaining the results of already lawfully collected information that's in the 702 database as, as Beth said, a preliminary investigatory step in the course of an investigation. Again, we're not disputing that there are serious problems with the querying side of the house, and we don't have time to walk through each and every recommendation that we provide, but there needs to be significant reform at the FBI. I think we've laid out a process where not only is the FBI responsible for implementing significant changes in-house, both structurally, procedurally, culturally, but as Beth mentioned earlier, congressional oversight into the program, especially with respect to sensitive cases that, that in which careers would be run. Generally speaking, a court order is considered a pro-privacy protective protection. Um, I can think of several examples of privacy statutes that the federal government, that Congress has promulgated that have such requirements. And I know there's an assumption that if data is already in the hands of some government agency, then it should be available to any government agency uh, without having to go to a court. Yeah. I, you know, I think one point that should be kept in mind is the balance that, that courts have talked about, the Supreme Court has talked about with regard to, you know, national security and criminal law. In general, the government has more leeway to, to conduct national security operations, investigations than criminal law investigations, because in criminal law, you could be putting someone in jail. And so even with, with crimes, though, like the fingerprint database, for example, when you run a fingerprint in order to investigate a crime, you don't need, the government doesn't need a warrant in order to match a fingerprint in the fingerprint database. They don't need a warrant to do that. Uh, the information is already lawfully collected and there's no question about that. And that's potentially to put someone in jail. A concern should be inverting the criminal and national security framework so that it's actually harder to conduct national security investigations than it is to conduct criminal investigations. I think that's a, a framework that, that should be kept in mind here. So I, I'd like to respond to that. It is not actually true, in my view, that the government has free reign to access already collected data. In my separate statement, I actually go through a Fourth Amendment analysis on how 
the initial collection under Section 702 is a seizure, and the subsequent U.S. person query is a search, and analogized to a Supreme Court decision, Riley versus California, where the police had uh, collected defendants' uh, cell phones incident to arrest, and the Supreme Court held that they needed a separate search warrant in order to search through the contents of the cell phone. And the similar uh, process and similar analysis would apply in this context. It is not simply true that the government has free reign to use otherwise lawfully collected information for any lawful purpose. So with that, the chair has the last word. We'll have to leave it there for today. Thank you all so much for joining me. Thank you, Stephanie. Thank Thank you, Stephanie. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter through our website, lawfaremedia.org support. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath, our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. Check out our written work at lawfaremedia.org. The podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening.